Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. There's an old joke about how everything in Australia wants to kill you. From honeybees to eastern brown snakes to bull sharks, it seems every living creature was designed to inflict the most damage possible on the local population. But there is one death on record there that can't be blamed on the wildlife. The victim's identity is still a mystery today, known only by where the police found him, on a beach south of Adelaide, Australia, near Somerton Park. It's unlikely, though, that he was killed by a snake or a shark because there were no bite marks anywhere on his body. When the police found him on the morning of December 1st, 1948, he was lying face up in the sand with his legs crossed at the ankles. At first glance, he looked to be sleeping, but as the officers got closer, they realized the situation was far worse. They searched the body for identification, a wallet or a driver's license, anything to help their investigation. What they found instead was an unlit cigarette resting on his collar, a collection of unusual artifacts in his pockets, including an unpunched second-class train ticket to Henley Beach, about 11 kilometers away, an unused bus ticket, an American hair comb, some chewing gum, half a pack of cigarettes, and a matchbox. He had been a fit man, and according to the coroner, his feet and legs were those of a dancer or someone who often wore high-heeled boots with pointed toes. The labels on his clothes had been removed, and he carried no wallet or hat. Even dental records proved fruitless. By all accounts, the man didn't exist, and he appeared to have committed suicide. An investigation into his death began almost immediately after he was brought in for examination. According to the coroner, his organs had become congested and there was blood in his stomach. His spleen had grown to three times its normal size. Then all these signs pointed to the man having been poisoned hours before his death. Witnesses soon came forward and described the man who, the night before, they had seen in the same area. Around 7 p.m., he had extended his right arm about as far as it would go, and then let it drop to his side. He didn't move again after that. Despite the numerous reports, though, no one was ever able to identify the stranger on the beach. It wasn't until over a month later when another clue showed up. A suitcase had been discovered at a local train station after being checked into the station's coat room toward the end of November. But it was never reclaimed. Its label had been removed, so identifying its owner would have been problematic. But a suitcase full of clothing lacking identifying information seemed to fit what they were looking for already, so it was assumed that this luggage belonged to the victim. The only items in the suitcase with any kind of name on them were a tie, a laundry bag, and a vest— all of which bore the last name Keen, but no one by that name had been on any incoming trains at all. In June of 1949, an inquest was launched by the coroner's office to determine the true cause of death beyond a reasonable doubt, which meant examining all the evidence. This included the man's clothing. Inside a small pocket sewn into his trousers, the police found a tiny slip of rolled-up paper with the words, Tamam Should, written in a strange font. It had come from an English translation of a Persian poem called The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. The authorities conducted a nationwide hunt for a copy, 
releasing a photo of the tiny rectangle of paper to the public. It didn't take long for someone to step forward. A man with a 1941 edition of the book took it to police headquarters, where he not only showed the page where the words had been cut out, but also where someone had used the book to write something down. Indentations were detected on the back cover. Someone had written down a phone number and a kind of coded message using the rubaiyat as a flat surface. More experts were called in, hopefully trying to decrypt the message, but there was too little information to use. It seemed everything about the victim had led to this dead end, his identity, his life, and the message he'd left behind. Even after all these years, no one has been able to identify the Somerton man. The only part of the case that bears any kind of closure is that scrap of paper found in his pants pocket. We know where it came from, and we know what the phrase tamam should means. Finished. A message that tells us absolutely nothing new about the mystery man, and yet summarizes his story perfectly. A curious end to a curious tale. However frustrating that might be. The world has a way of breaking a person down. Suffer enough failures and you'll find yourself at rock bottom, clawing your way back to the top, or at least out of the hole you've dug for yourself. However, while some wallow in self-pity and wait for something good to happen, a rare few actually find the strength to get out there and do what needs to get done to succeed, pulling oneself up by the bootstraps and seeking out a better life, even if they have to take it by force. And that's where Joshua comes in. Born around 1818 in England, he moved to South Africa with his family as part of a group known as the 1820 Settlers in order to colonize South Africa on behalf of the British. He lived there for many years, until 1849 when he got word of the gold rush happening on America's west coast. His goal was to pursue the elusive American dream. He found a niche for himself in San Francisco as a real estate developer, but his greed quickly tripped him up. Several years later, he saw a new opportunity, though, and entered yet another market. Rice speculation. You see, back then, China was facing a famine and had stopped shipping rice outside the country. The price went through the roof here in the United States, and when Joshua got word of a cargo ship hauling 200,000 pounds of it from Peru, he bought the whole shipment. His stranglehold on the rice industry didn't last long, though. More cargo ships had already been dispatched to the U.S., the demand for Joshua's stock plummeted, as did his prices, and after a lengthy and expensive litigation process, poor Mr. Norton had to face the treacherous new frontier of bankruptcy. The losses and failures had all become too much for him, so Joshua left San Francisco for, well, somewhere. No one really knows where, but he returned a year later as a different man, a very different man. You see, he'd had a revelation. Rather than try and work his way back up to his old standing as a successful businessman, Joshua chose to reach higher, and no one was going to stop him. He started sending in letters to local newspapers, urging congressmen from all over the country to come meet with him. Why? Because Joshua, as it so happened, had declared himself Emperor of the United States. He had big ideas for the country, including the dissolution of the United States Congress, 
He also wanted to break up the country into smaller factions and eliminate the two-party system from the political process. He often strutted up and down San Francisco's streets in a blue military uniform, adorned with gold epaulettes and a hat out of which stuck a peacock feather. He regaled the public with lectures about many topics, and surprisingly, everyone loved him. He was a local celebrity who often ate for free at any restaurant of his choosing. He never had to buy tickets to shows or concerts, and he even created his own currency to pay for whatever he wanted, called Norton Dollars, and people simply accepted it as real money. Unfortunately for Joshua, while his exploits earned him the favor of his fellow San Franciscans, the local police weren't as hospitable. One officer even arrested him with the intention of having him committed to a mental health facility for his wild declarations and odd behavior. But the people wouldn't have it. Both the public and the local media voiced their displeasure with the arrest. The police chief had no choice but to release him. As an act of good faith, Emperor Norton proceeded to pardon the officer who had arrested him. Throughout his rule, if you could call it that, Joshua Norton ordered numerous acts as Emperor of the United States. None of his decrees were ever carried out, of course, seeing as how the official U.S. government didn't acknowledge him as Emperor of anything. However, there was one idea he proposed that the town didn't throw away. It just took them a while to realize its greatness. In 1872, Joshua started looking for a way to connect San Francisco with Oakland across the San Francisco Bay. He ordered a suspension bridge be built between the two cities. Although without any political or financial pull, he was ignored. After all, it was nothing more than a pipe dream from a man with no power or authority. Emperor Norton passed away unexpectedly eight years later at the corner of California Street and what is now Grant Avenue. He'd been on his way to deliver a speech to a group of college students. But although he has faded from the memory of most, his dream was not forgotten. Over 50 years later, in 1936, construction was finally completed on the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Suspension Bridge. It connected the two cities, exactly as Norton had imagined it. Looking back, one thing is certainly clear. The emperor might not have had any power but he certainly had vision. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show and you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Stay curious.